Good morning. I'm glad that you, um, thank you so much. I'm glad that you were able to find parking spots. So what a morning for soccer. If you are joining us online, good morning. We are so glad you are here with us today. We are actually wrapping up our With God Life series this morning. It, it feels weird to say wrapping up the With God Life because we're never done with the With God Life. At least that's the goal. But we're finishing up our Old Testament series this morning. And I want you to recognize that this has not been a deep dive Lest you think you can get away with not reading your Old Testament anymore. That's not how this works. Our journey has been a very high-level look at how God has been at work in the lives of people throughout human history. How people have responded to the work of God throughout history. And some of the journey has been good. We've, we watched the highs and lows of Abraham's life. The highs and lows of the people of Israel. The highs and lows of the kings and the judges, the faithfulness and obedience of prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah. But some of this journey has been rough. A lot of this journey has been rough. (laughs) Hard-hearted, rebellious people whose overall attitude toward God has been, thanks, but uh, no thanks. I'm fine. And I don't mind reiterating the fact that this has been an issue from the beginning. Way back in Genesis 3, the serpent comes in, and it's this idea that we've bought into that God is holding out on me. I want what he has, but I want it on my own terms. I want to decide for myself. I want to choose what is right and what is wrong. I want to decide what is good in my own eyes. I want my own autonomy. And the last several weeks, we've had a journey through some of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and today Ezekiel, and their message is very similar. The situation of God's chosen people, Israel, has deteriorated to the point of total collapse. Israel actually doesn't even exist anymore, where we are in the text this morning, in Ezekiel chapter 1. Israel is gone. The kingdom was overtaken by Assyria and scattered among the nations. It's defeated and over, and Judah is all that's left. Out of 12 tribes that make it out of Egypt, way back in Exodus, there are two left. And the situation, when we hit the book of Ezekiel, is actually really dire. It's horrifying. It is, we are faced with the catastrophe that's left of the people of God. And I want us to feel that weight. I want us to feel that sorrow. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. They're experiencing the fall of Jerusalem at the same time. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel is already in exile in Babylon. And they show us the consequence of what happens after hundreds and hundreds of years of continued sin. And before we remove ourselves completely from the text, before we look at it with eyes that are 2,500 years removed from the story, let's not forget that the Old Testament is a mirror that we hold up to ourselves to see what's really going on inside. Human nature is human nature. The problem hasn't changed. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm good. And if you feel a little bit heavy, good. (laughs) 
I want us, we're going to be in this space for a minute. But don't be afraid. <laughs> it's hard to talk about the prophets without talking about the other prophets because they inform one another. It's also hard to talk about the prophets without talking about the book of Deuteronomy. So that's what we're going to do first. You had to know that was coming. You had to know that was coming. Everything goes back to Deuteronomy. So to get everybody on the same page, um, here's just a brief history that got us to where we are today. So Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation. Man is made in the image of God. That means that man was created to be the image bearer of God in creation. The representation and reflection of Yahweh in the world that he has made. Genesis 3, things go very wrong. We just talked about it. Man chooses autonomy and all of creation is affected. The rest of the story, from Genesis chapter 3 through the rest of this book, is the Lord at work in history to reconcile all things back to himself. He is in the business of fixing what has been broken and recovering what has been lost. We meet Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord comes to him and tells him, you are the person through which all nations will be blessed. All nations will be blessed through your descendants. We watch Israel get, get rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're called by the Lord to be his people. He makes a covenant with them, a binding agreement that says, if you do these things, spelled out in the law, then I will do these things. It's a conditional agreement. The Lord tells them, this is what it looks like to exist in relationship with me. He calls them a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19.5 says, Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. The representation and reflection of Yahweh to the nations. So what would that look like? This is where we get the Ten Commandments. This is what he tells them. He says, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make idols for yourselves. Don't worship them. Don't serve them. Don't bow down to them. Don't misrepresent my name. Learn how to rest in my presence. Honor your father and mother. Honor each other. Don't lie about one another. Don't steal from one another. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't long after what is not yours. And the people fail, obviously. That's where we get all our stories. Before they even make it out of the wilderness, before they even make it into their own land to establish their own kingdom, they fail. But God doesn't give up on them. He renews the covenant with them. And this is where we get the book of Deuteronomy. It's the renewal of the covenant with the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 15, this is what Moses says to the people. He says, now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to enter to occupy. But listen to this. If your hearts turn away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, 
between blessings and curses, and now I call on heaven to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love the Lord and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. This is a heart issue. In Deuteronomy 6.5, you have the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. We talked about Solomon at the end of July. He asks God for a heart that hears. The Lord shows up to him in a dream and says, ask whatever you want from me. And Solomon says, I want a heart that hears. That is what true wisdom is, a heart that is in tune with the Lord. If things go wrong, it's because there's an issue in the heart. And that's what the prophets are telling us. The people have not chosen life. They have repeatedly chosen the opposite. Their hearts have turned away, and they don't listen. And it's a cycle that is repeated for hundreds of years. When Isaiah comes onto the scene with chapter 1, it's a chapter, Isaiah chapter 1 is a heart. That's a tough message. He comes out swinging, and there's a lot of accusations that the Lord makes against the people of Israel. But Isaiah 1, he tells them, your heart is sick. That's the issue. They're going through all of the motions. They're doing the sacrifices. They're having their ceremonial law. They're doing the celebrations, and he hates it. He tells them later on in chapter 1, I am sick of your burnt offerings. Stop bringing me gifts. Your celebrations are sinful and false, and I don't want them anymore. I hate them. They're a burden to me. I can't stand them. They're doing the right stuff, but their hearts are so far from the Lord. There's a problem with the hearts of the people of God, and his character demands justice. But we don't like talking about that, do we? I was uh, recently listening to a message from Aaron Brockett, who is the lead pastor over at Traders Point, and he was talking about how we have trouble with the idea of a loving God getting angry. Why would a God who is love get angry? But Aaron said something that has stuck with me, um, and I wanted to share it with you. He said the opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference. God loves his people, and they have continually chosen poorly. They have continually chosen what was bad for them, what was harmful to them, what would bring them death. And there are consequences to those bad decisions. This is what the Lord says in Isaiah 30, 15. He says, you can be saved by returning to me. You can have rest you can be strong by being quiet and trusting me, but you don't want that. This is a heart issue. And this is what we need to know going into the book of Ezekiel because the kingdom is literally collapsing at this point in the story. We are at the point of no return, and things are bad. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel show us how bad things will get. But let me preface, before we jump in to Ezekiel, let me preface this by saying that Ezekiel is a strange book. 
But I don't ever want that to stop you from pushing into something. The Lord is strange by our definition of strange. And I think that we just need to come to terms with that. Instead of pushing it away or putting him in a box, we need to come to terms with the weird. So Ezekiel sees and does strange things, and that's with purpose. The Lord wants to highlight some very specific things to his people, and he does it through the message Ezekiel gives and often how he gives it. So don't let the fact that something is weird, by your definition, be a reason to skip over a story because you're going to miss out. We have to learn to embrace the strange because here we go. So as we get into Ezekiel chapter 1, there are some things that we need to know about Ezekiel. The exile has already begun. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Babylon has already begun this sort of multi-phase conquest of the kingdom of Judah. It begins in roughly 598 B.C. So the first wave of this conquest would involve coming in to Jerusalem and removing all of the people of consequence. So the royal family, all of the officials, priests in the temple, anybody of any kind of net worth would have been removed and relocated to settlements in Babylon. This is how Ezekiel ends up in Babylon by the time we get to chapter 1. He's part of the first wave of exiles. So he was, Ezekiel was actually raised in the temple to be a priest. He comes from a priestly family. He was raised to be a priest. And in chapter 1, this is his 30th year of life. He's 30 years old. And that would have been the year that he would have been installed as a priest in the temple. And we are five years into the exile by this point. So Ezekiel chapter 1. This is going to be up on the screens if you guys want to follow along. On July 31st of my 30th year, while I was on the Judean, while I was with the Judean exiles beside the Kebar River in Babylon, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. This happened during the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. So they're five years into the exile. Let's jump to verse four. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant lights. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that each had four faces and four wings. That doesn't look human. <laughs> our concept of human is different. That's fine. Their legs were straight, and their feet and hooves, like those of a calf, shone like burnished bronze. Under each of their four wings, I could see human hands. So each of the four beings had four faces and four wings. The wings of each living being touched the wings of the, wing of the beings beside it. Each one moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. Each one had a human face in the front, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle in the back. Each had two pairs of outstretched wings, one pair stretched out to touch the wings of the living beings on either side of it, and the other pair covered its body. And they went in whatever direction the spirit chose, and they moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. If you are thinking, huh? It's okay. <laughs> It's you and everybody else. I told you that we are embracing the weird with open hands. So Ezekiel is having a vision of the Lord, and it's even difficult for him to describe because he uses the phrase all of the time, it's like this, but like this is the best I can do in describing it. He goes on to talk about how next to the beings, there are four beings kind of standing in a square 
their wings touching each other. And next to these beings are giant wheels. And within the wheels are wheels. And they're huge. And the rims of the wheels are covered in eyes. It's weird. Why don't we see those kinds of angels on top of Christmas trees at Christmas? <laughs> I actually looked for an artist's rendition of what Ezekiel is seeing here, um, and there are a lot of artistic interpretations, but there weren't any that made me think, yeah, that, that captures it, because it's weird. And he goes on to describe how these beings and wheels are carrying a crystal-like platform on top of them that is holding something else. So these beings have a function. Let's look at what this is. We're going to pick this up in verse 26. He says, Above this surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli. And on this throne, high above, was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. From what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining with splendor. And all around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. Ezekiel is seeing the Lord. The Lord has shown up in Babylon on some kind of throne chariot that is not inhibited by space or time or direction. So Ezekiel is just chilling out on the shore of some river in Babylon, which is actually modern-day Iraq, and the Lord just shows up. The physical appearance of God's presence has shown up in Babylon, and this is a big deal. This should immediately spark our interest as the audience, because what is God doing in Babylon? Side note here, Babylon in biblical literature, both in Old Testament and New Testament, is the pinnacle symbol of rebellion against the Lord. Where do you think the Tower of Babel was located. Babylon equals rebellion. And we'll see this quite a bit in the book of Revelation. So it should come as no surprise that the physical consequence of so many years of God's people rebelling against him would be their physical relocation to Babylon, the seat of rebellion. So why is God there? We're going to pick this up in chapter 2, verse 1. A voice comes to him and says, Stand up, son of man, said the voice. I want to speak to you. And the spirit came into me as he spoke, and he set me on my feet, and I listened carefully to his words. Son of man, he said, I am sending you to the nation of Israel, a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me to this very day. They are stubborn and hard-hearted, but I am sending you to say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or refuse to listen, for remember, they are rebels. At least they will know they have a prophet among them. Ezekiel should have been a priest. That representation and reflection of Yahweh to the people. That was what he was being raised and trained to do before he was deported to Babylon. Now, in his 30th year, when he should have been installed as a priest in the temple, the Lord is instead installing him as a prophet. The Lord calls Ezekiel a watchman. A watchman's duty is to look out for warning signs of danger and then report it. If a watchman sees danger and does nothing to warn people about it, is he doing his duty? No, 
He's not. So if danger falls on the people and they succumb to it, whose responsibility is that? The watchman. Yes. So Ezekiel has to take his role very seriously. The Lord actually tells him repeatedly through this book, if you deliver this message and the people choose not to listen to you, that's on them. But if you do not deliver this message and the people succumb to the calamity, their blood is on your hands. That's a heavy role. And the Lord has a lot of accusations to make against his people in this book. He actually comes, he comes at everybody at some point in Ezekiel, but he comes for his people first, and he starts by telling them this, you have been rebelling against me the whole time. He tells them again, the whole lot, all of you are hard-hearted and stubborn. This goes back to that verse in Isaiah chapter 1, your heart is sick. He tells them, I've placed you at the center of the nations, but you've rebelled against me, and you're even more wicked than the nations around you. You refuse to obey me. You can't even live up to the standards of the nations around you. So he tells them, I will cut you off completely. I will show you no pity because you have defiled my temple with vile images and detestable sins. He says, you will know that I am the Lord. He actually says that 66 times in the book of Ezekiel. You will know that I am the Lord because they don't know him. He tells them, you will recognize how hurt I am by your unfaithful hearts and lustful eyes that long after idols. I will call you to account for your sins. I will repay you for your sins. I will turn my eyes away and show you no pity. In chapter 16, he even says, how sick is your heart? Now, remember, the opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference. The Lord is not indifferent to the choices his people have made, to the people that he loves. As a parent, can you imagine watching your child repeatedly make stupid decisions and take a step back because you love them and say, you do you, that's fine. I love you, you do whatever. No way. You would say, stop making stupid decisions because you love them. This is where the Lord is. He calls them rebellious, proud, wicked, violent, adulterous. They're not representing him or reflecting him at all. The choices they have made have led to their own destruction, and now the consequences are playing themselves out. Beginning in chapter 8 and going through chapter 11, the Lord shows Ezekiel a vision of the temple. So he's not in Jerusalem seeing this happen, but the Lord is showing him what is happening. And so in chapter 8, Ezekiel sees an idol uh, erected within the courts of the temple. There's an idol, and women are around it worshiping and weeping. He sees men standing inside the temple where the presence of God is, but they're not facing him. They're facing out the door towards the east because they're worshiping the sun. There are pagan images all over the walls. There are cult-like practices happening within the grounds of the temple, and the people don't even know that the Lord is still there. Remember way back in Exodus 40 when the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. 
The people of Israel have received the law. They've engaged in this new covenant relationship with the Lord. They've constructed the tabernacle. They've built all the things that go inside, including the Ark of the Covenant. And the culmination of all of that work is the glory of the Lord, the tangible presence of the Lord, filling the tabernacle to the point that nobody can go inside. It's that heavy and that real. It happens again in 2 Chronicles when Solomon completes the construction of the temple and they dedicate it. Nobody can go inside the temple because the glory of the Lord is so heavy. Ezekiel's vision in chapters 8 through 11 watches the Lord leave the temple in stages. They don't even know that he's still there and he leaves. He leaves from his place above the cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, where he dwelt, where his presence dwelt. He leaves, and he goes to the doorway, and, he, and Ezekiel sees him in the doorway, and he leaves. And then he goes to the gate of the temple, and he leaves, and the people don't even know. Ezekiel is watching this happen in stages, and the glory of the Lord leaves the temple on the same throne-like chariot that we see in chapter 1, but where does he go? He goes to Babylon, where his people are. Even in the seat of their rebellion, even in this nation that represents rebellion, the Lord's glory goes to where his people are and where they will be. We're going to pick this story up in chapter 11, beginning with verse 14. Then this message came to me from the Lord, and he said, Son of man, the people still left in Jerusalem are talking about you and your relatives and all the people of Israel who are in exile, and they are saying, those people are far away from us, so now he has given their land to us. Therefore, tell the exiles, this is what the sovereign Lord says, although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. When the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols. Pay attention to verse 19. And I will give them a singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart, and I will give them a tender, responsive heart. So they will be able to obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people, and I will be their God. This is a heart issue. It has always been a heart issue. Human nature is human nature. The Lord wants your heart. So I want you to do this with me, this little exercise with me. I want you to make a loose fist. I want to see fists. Like, show me that you are doing this with me. Makes me feel better. So now, old like ancient Near Eastern thought, believed they didn't think of the heart in the way that we think of a heart as the organ that pumps blood through the body. They saw the heart as the seat of human will, human emotion. It was the thing that guided what they did. So for the sake of this exercise, we're we're doing a fist because it's roughly the size of a human heart. So if this is a human problem, then their issue is our issue. So every time I choose my way over God's way, my heart gets a little tighter. So if you have that fist, make it a little tighter. Every time I don't love others well, 
My heart gets a little harder. Make that a little tighter. Every time I'm after my own interests, tighter. Every time I choose not to forgive, gets tighter. Every time I actively disobey the Lord, it gets tighter. Every time I choose not to trust him, it gets tighter. Every time I go after some false thing that can't save or change my life, it gets tighter. So before we had a loose heart, and now we have this tight-fisted thing, I want you to hold that to the center of your body. Can you imagine this rock-hard thing making good decisions? Choosing to love, choosing to serve, choosing to be obedient, choosing to turn to the Lord. This heart is so hard and curled in on itself, it's going to turn away from the Lord every time because the interest becomes self and preservation and getting what I need, getting what I want. It cannot even conceive of being open to other people, let alone the Lord, and that's the issue. This, that's, the hu- that's the human condition, hard and stubborn hearts. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm doing fine. Go ahead, shake out your hand. That was Israel's problem. It's our problem. It's a heart problem. Any one of us could have been the people in Isaiah chapter 1 when he comes in and he says, I hate the fact that you're going through motions because your heart isn't in it at all and I don't care about what you're doing. We could have been any of those people because it's, it's a heart problem. And this is where we're going to land. We're going to jump. Well, let's look at chapter 11 verse 19 again. Because this is what the Lord says. I will give them a singleness of heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn hearts, and I will give them a tender, responsive heart. I'm going to give them a new heart. And not just that, I'm going to take away their stony, stubborn hearts, and I'm going to give them a tender and responsive heart. He's been saying this since Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says it again in Jeremiah 24. Your heart is the problem but I'm going to give you a new one. Ezekiel covers quite a bit of time. And a lot of the prophets don't record things chronologically because there's a point to how they're doing it. Oracle, I'm, all kinds of stuff. It's poetry. There are no rules. But Ezekiel is really good at recording things chronologically. So we see the waves of the conquest happen over many, many years. The siege of, Jeru- the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, they're gone. The city walls are destroyed. The temple gets taken down. It gets burnt to the ground. It's devastating. Everything that identified them as a nation is wiped out. Everything that set them apart as the people of God is gone. It's where we get the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah writes it after everything is destroyed. But the Lord is where his people are. And he is in the business of fixing what has been broken and reconciling what has been lost. So we're going to pick this up in chapter 36. Beginning in verse 22. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. 
I will show you how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations, and you will live in Israel, the land I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will cleanse you of your filthy behavior." Let's jump to 33. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I cleanse you from your sins, I will repopulate your cities and the ruins will be rebuilt. Verse 36. Then the surrounding nations that survive will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruins and replanted the wasteland. For I, the Lord, have spoken and will do what I say. Old Testament prophecy is interesting because it often has dual meanings. There is this present fulfillment But there's also this element of future fulfillment. That's what we're seeing here. The Lord is going to restore their land to them. They're in exile for roughly 70 years. Then Persia rises up as the new it kingdom, takes over Babylon, and allows remnants of Judah to return to Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. But the presence of the Lord never returns to it, ever. They never reached the place among the nations that they always expected to be, that it was always foretold they would be. They never get that righteous king whose kingdom is supposed to last forever. They get puppet kings who are controlled by the nations around them. More prophets come. The same problem remains. Stony, stubborn hearts. There's roughly 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. So that's 400 years where there are no answers to the problem that plagues humanity. There are no new revelations from God until a man named Jesus walks onto the scene. And he begins talking about this new kind of kingdom. And this kingdom has life. And this kingdom brings restored relationship with God. And this kingdom brings restored relationship with one another. And this kingdom is one that is unified and eternal. This kingdom comes with a new spirit who teaches, who helps, who causes us to remember, who plants fruit in our lives so that we can live in love and joy and peace. And we can be faithful and we can display self-control so that we can be patient and steadfast so that we can have hearts that are tender and responsive to God so that we can be his people. We have, that's our benefit. We have the same problem as the people of Israel, but we have the benefit of a new heart and a new spirit within us, but do we live like it? There is this tension in the New Testament, the age of the church, where we are now. And it's this tension of already, but not yet. Already, we have the reality of the kingdom. Already, we have the reality of Jesus as king, whose kingdom will never end. 
Already, we have the reality of new hearts and a new spirit within us. But we don't yet see the full culmination of that kingdom. Not yet has every knee bowed and every tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord. Not yet do we have the reality of a world without sin. Already, but not yet. So there is this tension in our hearts We have new hearts, but there's this constant battle for that heart to remain tender and responsive to the Lord, obedient to the Lord, open to the Spirit. Remember, the Old Testament is a mirror. Their problems are our problems. Disobedient, untrusting, idolatrous, unfaithful, continually drawn away from the things of the Lord because we want the things of the world. I get to decide what is right in my own eyes. It's a heart issue. But the Lord is where his people are. And he is in the business of fixing what has been broken. And he is here to give a new heart and a new spirit. I'm sorry I don't have a three-point sermon for you today. I just have one question. What is the status of your heart? When we had that tight-fisted heart and pictured that in the center of our bodies, did that ring true for you? That tight fist of hardness and stubbornness, this heart that is so stony and self-focused and maybe even ashamed that it can't even muster up the will to turn to the Lord if it tried. Maybe that rings true for you. Maybe it's a heart of indifference, which is the opposite of love. It just sort of exists, drifts along, doesn't feel life-giving, it doesn't feel much of anything, just goes with the flow. Maybe it is a new heart. You have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit with you, but you still need help in keeping it tender and responsive to the Lord. We all have things in our hearts that need to be turned over to the Lord and surrendered to the Spirit continually. But we can ask the Lord what that is. Ask the Lord. I have a new heart, but I put up a lot of walls around it. That's me. Oh, goodness. And new relationships in my life have taught me, like, dang, I have a lot of walls. But the Lord comes in and says, I can help. Let's start taking those down. Let's start removing those. You have a new heart. There are lots of walls. Let's work on that. You have a new heart, but maybe you struggle with anger or forgiveness, obedience to the Lord, trusting, loving other people well. You have a new heart, but it's still bound by old struggles. I have a new heart. Why hasn't this changed? What is it? What is the condition of your heart? What is keeping your heart from being renewed and responsive and tender? There's an easy solution. I think we often make things so complicated. There is an easy solution. You ask the Lord for help. That's what we do. We ask the Lord, my goodness, just ask. 
Maybe it's like what he did with Solomon, where he just shows up to you and says, ask me what you want. Just ask. It doesn't have to be a huge, drawn-out thing. Remember, Solomon's ask was like, Lord, just give me a heart that hears. Real brief. Lord, give me a new heart. Lord, give me a heart that responds to you. Lord, help me surrender my heart to you. Holy Spirit, let your fruit be present in my life. Lord, search my heart and point out any unclean thing. Just ask. The worship team is going to come back up. We have one more song, and it's all about how God brings life back to dead things. I want to tell you, you are never too far away from the Lord for him to give you a new heart, for him to step in. Even in the midst of rebelliousness, the glory of the Lord is near. And it's available. And he wants to do it. It's been the message from the beginning. I want to give you a new heart. I want to help you live this life. I want to give you what you need to represent and reflect me to the world around you. He can do it. Just ask. I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to pray together. Lord, we thank you for the love that you give that constantly comes after us. For the love that, even in the midst of consequence, pursues and is present. Lord, I just lift up every person in this room, every heart that is present in this room. I ask that your Holy Spirit would begin to do the work that only you can do that transforming work, that life from death work. Lord, give us hearts that are tender and responsive to you. Let us be people who live like we are your people and you are our God so that we will know, so that the nations around us will know, our communities, our neighbors will know that you are the Lord and you bring life and you bring newness. Thank you for your generosity, for your love, your compassion, your pursuit. Thank you for the new hearts. Thank you for the transforming work that you're already doing. We love you and we worship you. Help us to continue to live like your people. Amen.